Well, welcome to the Water Table Podcast. We're now into 2024 and uh, looking for a great year of more uh, topics, education, and just talking about water quality and agriculture. Today, I have Alex Boosman with me. Um, Alex uh, is currently a graduate assistant at Iowa State University and uh, an Iowa native. And uh, excited to have Alex on today and just talk a little bit about what he's involved with there from the standpoint of research and, and what they're doing at Iowa State um, on water quality. As many of the listeners know, we've had Matt Helmers on, Dr. Matt Helmers, many times. And uh, he's uh, quickly becoming kind of an icon in this whole industry of water quality and agriculture. So it's fun to have um, someone of the next generation, as Alex is, um, to just talk with us about what he thinks and what he's doing and, you know, the exciting things that we can do to impact uh, our farms for the better with water quality. So welcome to the podcast, Alex. Hey, thank you. I'm excited for it. So. Yeah, good. Um, tell us just a little bit about your background. I know you're from northern Iowa, but uh, how did you kind of um, end up where you're at uh, at Iowa State now? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so that's sort of a funny story because um, I never knew what I wanted to do with my life out of high school. So um, I went to uh, Des Moines Area Community College uh, right out of high school and I moved to Ankeny um, and sort of didn't know what to do. So I started taking some random gen eds classes and um, uh, took a random uh, environmental science course and learned all about uh, nutrient pollution in Iowa, and, uh, Mississippi River, and Gulf of Mexico, stuff like that. So um, fell in love with the idea, um, graduated from DMAC in 2020, and then I um, moved to Ames, went to Iowa State, uh, started taking any class I could that involved uh, water quality and water conservation, that sort of stuff. So um, I'd say my education sort of... Uh, grew at Iowa State, um, involving water, of course. Um, and uh, then I took a, I accepted a role with um, Matt Helmers as an undergrad intern for his lab. And I sort of worked in agricultural water management um, throughout um, the two years uh, I was here at Iowa State. And that sort of helped me get to where I'm at now because I'm a graduate research assistant with Dr. Michelle Sapir, uh, working with energy field work. And um, sort of uh, diving into the world of uh, agricultural water management. Sure, sure, sure. And uh, you know what? Uh, what before we get into some of the specific questions, how do you um, see like your peers, um, whether when you were in undergrad or now? Um, how, how do they think about uh, the paths we're going down for water quality? And and I mean, is there a lot of um, is there a lot of excitement that for what we can do in our industry to uh, just do things different, but that really impact us for the positive with water quality? Yeah, I mean, um, we have a lot of work to do, that's for sure. But um, I'd say a lot of my colleagues are involved in water quality in some way or another. Um, and so there's a lot of optimism going forward. Um, it's only going to get better from now um, as more people are um, becoming or recognizing the problem and um, doing what they can to solve it. So, yeah. Sure. Sure. 
Um, so one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was um, this this dual chamber bioreactor and, and pumped. And can you can you explain what that is and and why that's exciting? And you know, to my knowledge, at Iowa State uh, is this is the only place in the world that's doing this right now. And why is this important? Yeah. So from our from our knowledge, this is the only pumped bioreactor in our world. Um, so it sort of wasn't planned like that originally. Um, so let's see, a dual chamber bioreactor is basically two bioreactors in one. It's connected to the same tie line um, and it's meant to treat um, higher flows than uh, a typical bioreactor would receive. That's why there's two. Um, so we had this um, field that was expected to have a lot of tile drainage. Um, and then that just wasn't the case. It was just a error somewhere. And so the hydraulic residence time of the tile water in these wood chip bioreactor chambers um, was really high, which is not ideal because with high hydro hydraulic residence times, um, there can be um, complete nitrate removal, which isn't ideal because um, in a high uh, HRT setting, hydraulic residence time, um, there can be methane production. When all the nitrate is reduced, they can move on to uh, reducing uh, the carbon dioxide in the water. And so um, it can lead to methane production. So to solve this, um, we had a creek adjacent to the uh, chambers and we thought maybe we could pull some of the um, high concentrated uh, uh, nitrates from the water, um, pump the water from the creek through the bioreactor and then um, send it out back into the creek, uh, just no nitrates. Um, so we got that going in 2022, um, and it's been running ever since, except uh, that the project just uh, ended recently. So um, it did show promising results. Um, the, we were able to have flow when uh, most reactors weren't having flow. Um, so that was good. Um, the only problem I would say is that it sort of introduced sediment into the chambers, sure. which is, um, it can, uh, sort of lead to blockages and, um, more problems and that sort of stuff. Sure. Sure. But, uh, it was, it was good. I, I thought it was a interesting project and, and yeah. And the, the sediment is that probably just because of higher flows that, that that's how that got right. There? Yeah. 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 Because yeah. typically in a tile, you won't have that much uh, sediment in the water. Sure. But when you pull it from the creek, it's just going to sure. um, increase it. So. Sure, sure. So that probably means if it's too much and it blocks it, that it just has a shorter life. Um, right. Right, yeah. Okay, good. Well, we'll be... Uh, you know, excited to hear more of the results of that as as you guys uh, share them and and understand them better. Um, there was another project, this Force to the Farm project. Um, can you talk about that? I'm I'm very unfamiliar, and maybe just share with our listeners what that's about and what you're doing there. Sure, that's a that's a new project we got going on here. Um, so we're trying to tie forest management strategies to water quality strategies. We have these lower marketable trees um, in forests. These would be, you know, ash trees because they're all going down with the uh, the emerald ash borer. Um, we have hackberry trees and uh, hickory trees that are 
you know, they're not useless, but they're considered less profitable for many forest management. Um, so we're our, the idea is to harvest those trees to make room for more uh, marketable trees like uh, the oaks or what you have. Um, so we are currently working with um, some people in the forestry department, uh, in NREM department um, at Iowa State. And he's sort of, uh, Dr. Billy Beck is who we're referring to. And he's a sort of the wood expert on campus here. And he um, is sort of trying to uh, develop a supply chain of these uh, trees. And so we're shipping up these trees and putting them to biodictors um, in an isolated setting. So only hackberries are going into these one chambers. And so we've done some preliminary results in um, some column bioreactors uh, in the lab, which is just creating a field scale bioreactor and shrinking it down to uh, uh, about a foot long or so, um, maybe a little bit longer than that. Um, and that sort of can sort of uh, sort of show us what we're going to see. Um, obviously, it's not going to be exactly the same since it's not a field scale um, bioreactor. It's not. Uh, exposed to the field settings. And so we've had uh, these hackberry and hickory trees, um, the, the wood chips, um, seem to remove the most nitrate than uh, other trees, or significantly more, I should say. Um, and that's sort of motivating us to um, do this at field scale. And so there's still many bioreactors in construction or in planning. Uh, so we have 20 or so um, bioreactors planned and maybe eight in the ground already. So we're going to have a few standards, which is the random mix. We're going to have, I think, three to five hickory, hackberry, and ash. Um, and then sort of compare across the, the a few we have and and uh, see if we can sort of influence how bioreactors are going to be constructed in the future. Sure, sure. Well, very interesting. Yeah, um, yeah I, I look forward to There's probably a lot of questions there, but um, do you have any idea why he's picking the the types, you know, like Hackberry? What, what's the reasons for that? Is it more absorption or... So um, I don't say we, I wouldn't say we have a direct answer on why these wood species are better at removing nitrate than others. Um, in my opinion, it's just because there's uh, less nit uh, less um, naturally occurring antimicrobial properties within them. Um, I know Billy has also talked about the uh, spore um, distributions within the which are just uh, tiny little holes of the chips. Um, he would be an expert person to bring on and talk about it. Um, but also, we're, we're trying to think about the marketability uh, of these uh, trees in the forest. So um, these trees are uh, great in abundance, but they are not necessarily profitable for these, uh, for these forests. So we're trying to take those trees out of the forest 
to allow more room for uh, more economic uh, um, economical trees, um, and then also improve water quality. Mm-hmm. Good, good. That'll be really interesting to to get those results. As you know, we have. Um, and that's really where I'm going with the next question around some of what you're doing in your thesis and, and decades old bioreactors and, you know, what can we do? I think we're getting more and more information, more and more time on these bioreactors to really know what we have and that they do work. But, you know, how can we per- improve them and have maybe high performance bioreactors with, you know, specific varieties of of wood chips so um that'll be really exciting to see um and uh look forward to that we'll for sure have you or others back on to to talk about that in the future you know whether that's um next year or or in the future because i'm curious about that because i really want to know why too it's it's interesting um but talk to me a little bit about that about your your thesis and and uh what you're doing there and what you're finding if if you can share any of that at this point yeah absolutely so the main research question I have with this project is how long do these things last? That's a very common question uh, across all landowners. You know, they don't want to invest in something that is short term, right? Um, so uh, I basically want to investigate how long these things last and what's driving uh, these things, uh, like what, what's um, deteriorating their performance over time. So. Um, I have three sites in this project, um, all of which are nine to 10 years old. They were installed in 2014, 2013. Um, so I reached out to these landowners and I uh, asked them if they'd be okay with me coming out and uh, monitoring their wood chip bioreactor. And they were all for it, excited, because they were all questioning the same thing I wanted to answer, you know, how long do these things last and how do they do when they're this old? Um, so. I started out with just uh, basic water samples and we're seeing how they are removing the nitrate. Um, and then also we're doing these tracer tests because these tracer tests, um, they sort of um, show us how flow is moving within the chamber. And so uh, to explain a tracer test, we're, we make a big uh, plug, a jug of water full of uh, a naturally occurring, non-toxic, and uh, conservative, conservative uh, chemical. And so we sort of input that into the inlet and then sample the outlet at uh, certain time intervals, which whether it's 20 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour, um, it all depends on the flow. And we use auto samplers for that, so it, it can go for multiple days if we need. Um, and so there's a bunch of math calculations that will um, describe the flow through the chamber. So if if it's um, experiencing preferential flow patterns, if it's non-uniform flow, if there's um, sort of dense, dead zones or gaps that are just not experiencing any flow. Um, so that's that can sort of also paint the picture of the performance. Um, because in, in an ideal bioreactor, you want ideal flow, um, uniform flow. Um, you don't want that there are many uh, uh, dead zones or gaps where there's no flow moving. Um, so we're doing that in all three sites, along with the nitrate removal. And we're seeing 
differing results across all three sites. So um, I'll start with the first one. This, there's one located in Story County. Uh, this site is unique because it receives um, a ton of flow throughout the year. Um, even it, I bet it's flowing right now and it's snowy and cold. So um, this site is um, great at nitrate removal, um, nearly complete nitrate removal um, across the board here. Um, so uh, that was good. And then I moved to the, onto the tracer test and uh, conducted that. But the curve we see, the calculations we see there, um, are showing uh, non-preferable flow patterns. So what's going on? You know, I, I tried to um, look into the results and I found that uh, there's sediment being delivered in these high flows. So when the flow is coming in real fast into the water chamber, the water control structure, um, it's also bringing sediment with it. And so when it's going into the chamber, uh, and slowing down, a lot of that sediment is being deposited. So when I first went to this site, um, this would have been in April or May of 2023, um, I was poking around in the water, in the water control structure, and I found nearly two feet of sediment um, just built up in that water control structure. So it's sort of blocking the flow going into the bioreactor. And so um, with that, the hydraulic residence time is increasing and because you know it can't uh, uh, flow uh, perfectly through the chamber without any uh, blockages right um, and so uh, i had to inform the landowner you know there's probably a broken tile line somewhere upstream that's letting that sediment in and so um, i told him that he needs to uh, be vigilant of that. So, um, he can either leave it, and just come flush the sediment out. You flush the sediment out of the inlet water control structure by just pulling all the stop locks and that'll just bypass all the sediment. Um, and so I told him that he should either look into fixing the inlet breakage or, or not the inlet breakage, the upstream tile breakage, or, uh, continue just to um, look for that sediment build up and flush it as needed. Um, I recommended once a month, uh, at least. And so that was the story for that one. Um, the, there's another site that I have in Dyersville, Iowa, uh, that's sort of, um, North, uh, Northeast Iowa. And so this bioreactor is interesting because it has really high nitrate, uh, concentrations coming in because um, our suspicion is that it's receiving that uh, inorganic fer fertilizer. Um, and then it's also receiving manure applications. So we're, we're seeing high nitrates coming in. And then, so I, I visited the site just the same as the last one, um, started taking water samples and we looked at the nitrate removal and it was uh, very poor. Um, the, so the inlet would be about 30 and the outlet would be maybe 28 milligrams per liter of nitrate, um, which is very, uh, poor. When you think of a bioreactor, you can 
think of it moving or moving uh, 60 to 90% or even 100%. Um, this is experiencing less than 20% removal, if I remember correctly. And so um, we're trying to think of what's limiting this nitro removal. Uh, is it temperature? Because it's a microbial um, driven process. So um, with low temperatures, uh, there's low microbial activity. And so I started looking at the temperature. Temperature is normal, you know, uh, across uh, all bioreactors. It's pretty standard and um, decided that wasn't the limiting factor. Um, also, I looked at the dissolved oxygen concentrations of the uh, bioreactor. Um, dissolved oxygen is important because uh, denitrification is a um, it, it, it's, 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 it, it works in anaerobic environments. So, uh, anaerobic meaning there's no oxygen, it's an airtight chamber, um, and there's no oxygen. So I looked at the inlet and outlet, um, dissolved oxygen concentrations and, uh, decided that wasn't a limiting factor either because at the outlet, um, it was basically zero um, milligrams per liter of dissolved oxygen. So <clears throat> then that leads me to look at the flow again. So I did another tracer test and um, um, I compared it to the previous test they did back in 2017. Um, and it looked, you know, optimal. Uh, like there was no problem happening with the flow. Um, so I'm thinking, what is causing the problem? Why is there poor nitrate removal in this bioreactor? And my experiences with the forest to farm project sort of makes me think of what's going on in the wood chips. Uh, back in 2013, 2014, we weren't keeping track of the wood chips that were going into these chambers. Um, and so I'm thinking maybe the wood chips are limiting the microbial activity to remove all these nitrates. So um, I think we're planning to uh, sample some wood chips. So we're going to go up there and bring a shovel and start digging and taking a sample of these wood chips to figure out what's exactly inside here. Um, and sort of we're going to determine if that is the limiting factor. Um, right now, that's our best guess. Um, sort of everything else that's going on is um, sort of optimal. Like, there's, it doesn't seem like there's a problem other than the nitrate removal. Um, so that's what we, we got going on for that one. Um, the third site is located in, near Washington, Iowa, so southeast Iowa. Um, this site is also 10 years old. Um, and so, uh, same thing. I started with, uh, sampling water to look at the nitrate pool. Um, this, this one seems perfectly fine after 10 years. Um, we're not seeing any sediment buildup in the inlet. The nitrate removal is fine. Um, the flow has not been completed. Like we haven't done a trace test there yet. Um, we tried and, and there was a malfunction with the, uh, auto sampler. So we had to uh, uh, scratch that data, and then we're going to try again come, come snow melt. Um, but for now, that site looks perfectly fine. You know, it's removing nitrate. 
it's receiving sufficient flow um, and all looked well. Um, some good news for that landowner, I guess. But yeah, um, but that's sort of uh, what I have going on with that project, um, sort of looking into what's causing these issues. So um, the sediment for the first one, the potentially the wood chips, that's our best guess for that one now. Uh, and then also we're seeing these things can last longer than 10 years. You know, that's sort of uh, the deadline we kind of, uh, or the lifespan we kind of predict these things to last. But um, that doesn't mean exactly at 10 years, these things are dead and you need to recharge it. Um, it just depends on the site, really. Right, right. And I think, you know, just listening to that, um, I think that anyone involved in agriculture in the state of Iowa should be excited about you know, what's coming and, and the future of conservation in, in Iowa, just because there's a lot going on at Iowa state around, um, the research side, not just what, what you're doing, but what others are doing. And, um, I think to expect change, but expect positive change, um, will be something in the future, but just kind of wanted to end with that a little bit is, is, uh, you know, how do you encourage landowners or how, how do you think we should not if maybe not you personally, but how do you think as a as an industry, we should encourage landowners to join the cause and to uh, be thinking about and and implementing practices for conservation on their farm? Yeah, that's a great question and a great challenge to face uh, in the coming future. Um, that's also sort of what I'll be doing going forward after I graduate, um, helping landowners in, in, uh, helping landowners implement uh, conservation practices on their land. Um, you know, first of all, I will say we always have to respect uh, the landowner's decision. You know, it's their land, their decision. If they don't want to do anything, that's okay. Um, I, but, you know, we sort of got to... It's, it's hard to care about something that you can't see, right? You can't see the nitrate in the water. And so it's hard to um, care about that. And I, I understand that. Um, so we sort of have to, you know, be, um, educate these farmers um, about what's going on and sort of, you know, tie in other ideas. You know, if you put a saturated buffer on your land, and for the listeners that don't know, a saturated buffer is sort of a vegetative strip that is meant to create a barrier between uh, an agricultural field and a nearby creek, uh, stream, ditch, that sort of stuff. And it sort of it can it, the towel will um, connect with the um, saturated buffer and reintroduce the high nitrates in the water with the uh, soil microbes and all that sort of stuff uh, helps remove nitrate very well, actually. Um, the thing farmers like about it is that it takes a lot of land out of production. Um, so you got to bring in other ideas. How, how could a saturated buffer be um, beneficial to a landowner? You know, you got to think of if these guys hunt, um, there is new habitat there. Um, it can make your land more, uh, look more uh, aesthetically pleasing. Um, 
you just got to think of other ways to motivate people into doing these sort of things um, and say they don't have the right environment uh, for a saturated buffer. A wood chip bioreactor is um, pretty, uh, uh, it could fit in anywhere on the farm. Um, as long as there's tile, it can fit in somewhere. Um, so we, we got to think of ways to um, encourage farmers to do these things. You know, uh, one thing I always like to bring up is uh, Des Moines Waterworks. Um, if you, a simple Google search can tell you that um, the nitrate removal facility they have costs about $2,000 a day to remove the nitrates to, uh, uh, in the drinking water for the city of Des Moines. Um, and so it, this thing isn't on every day, but over the last 10 years, it has been on for nearly or over 400 days, which has resulted in a cost of nearly $5 million. And that's, you know, it increases the rates of uh, the utility use uh, um, for the people of Des Moines. Um, you know, so if you've got family in Des Moines, that might be a motivating factor for you to uh, lower your delivery rates of nitrate into these rivers, you know, and that, that just doesn't, that's, that's not only for the city of Des Moines, there's plenty of rivers that are um, water drinking sources all across the country. Um, and so $10,000 a day, $5 million over 10 years, the average biorecord cost is only $8,000. And so I, I see that as a better financial investment than, um, sort of these this $10,000 a day for the nitrate removal facility. Um, so it's just finding multiple uh, examples on what might motivate people to um, implement these practices. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I listened to you, Alex, and, and it's, it's exciting to me because um, I think there's two generations before you that were kind of the trailblazers in this whole thing in agricultural conservation. And and then Dr. Matt Helmers and his generation are kind of the implementers. And it's your generation that can carry the torch and take that implementation and really make it what it can be. And and that's exciting to me who, you know, I've been, I've been around now over 25 years in the industry and watched this develop. And to see uh, young, smart minds that are willing, able, and excited about implementing some of this is, is fun to see. So, uh, keep the work up. It's, it's great what you're doing. Um, I'm also just thinking about what you're just talking about with, with Iowa and, and, uh, you know, farmers in Iowa that you can't, you know, that it's their land and they have to decide what they want to do on it. And yet when I think about that, that is, that is so true, but, um, it has been ingrained in, in a farmer's mind that, you know, we keep the land, we keep the land in the family, we keep buying more land when we can. That's what we do. And uh, there's an old saying that, that would go, if you love yourself, you buy a condo in Florida. If you love your kids, you buy land. And if you love your kids, you tile it. Or you love your grandkids, you tile it. Because that's how long land stays in uh, in families. And I think what's what's people like your generation is changing is that mindset a little bit around um, tiling is a foregone conclusion to a farmer. They know they need to do it because it improves the land so much and improves their bottom line. But what's the next step around water quality? If we love our grandkids, 
what are we going to do and what can we do um, to make that water um, better for them and and future generations. So um, I just kind of want to leave it with that, that uh, excited about what you're doing. Um, Keep up the hard work and and Alex will will keep you in the loop here at the water table. And and as your results come in over the the next uh, months and years, let's uh, keep connected and, and hear about what what you're up to and the kind of positive impacts you're having. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks, Alex. Well, thanks for listening to this episode. I have so much fun uh, recording these. I hope you have as much fun listening as I do recording. These episodes are available on all major podcast platforms as well as YouTube. So find them and download them when you can. Thanks for joining us.